Welcome to our podcast. This teaching is a part of our Sunday morning service at Garden City Church in Southern California. For more information about our church, visit GardenCityChurch.co. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. We have 10 verses in front of us. When I'm done reading, I will say, this is the word of, of the Lord. And then you can respond and say, thanks be to God. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published throughout all of Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God." Let everyone turn from his evil way and turn from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. I titled my message, Let's Try This Again. Maybe you've had to explain that to someone before. I know for me I have. Uh, Wanting a second chance usually only comes when you realize the consequence attached to your first time in disobedience. At work, maybe you learn to cut corners. You've learned it saves time, but it's not ideal and maybe even dangerous to do something like that. Maybe while driving, you learn the language of the signals. You know that as soon as that one turns yellow, yours is green, and you're already on the gas pedal ready to go before it turns green. You drive aggressively, you drive fast, and by some point, you end up getting pulled over. In parenting, there's a consequence for someone who is not listening, and it's usually the kids, hopefully. In marriage, there's a consequence for not listening. It's usually the husband. And what we find, it was a joke, by the way, what we find when we think about second chances is we often don't realize that we have a second chance to do what we've done until the consequence has occurred. The other night, we're talking to my kids, and um, my oldest was wanting to do something different than what I was asking her, and I kept asking her, and I kept asking her, and I said, okay, you have a consequence. That's just what we say, because really in the moment in, in maybe in anger and frustration, like you're grounded for a month and then you're like a month and then you're like, oh, why did I say that? So we just use the phrase, you have a consequence. We don't know what it is, but we're gonna discuss and huddle over here as a, as a family and they're gonna tell you what it is. But as soon as we say that phrase, my kids' ears perk up and they're like, no, why, why, why do I have a consequence? You weren't listening. I kept saying something to you over and over, and you're like, no, but wait, but wait, but wait. And it's always the second chance. And of course, after that, my oldest says, Dad, can you just give me another chance? It's 
chance. I gave you another chance. I gave you so many chances, in fact, that I don't even know what number chance we're on right now. There are so many chances that you have had. And so oftentimes, when we see our second chance in life, it's only after a consequence has occurred. And that is the case here with Jonah as well. Jonah finds himself in a very familiar situation. So before we look at what Jonah 3 has, let's recap to refresh our minds about what's happened up until this point. In Jonah chapter 1, we read that God had called Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, and Jonah ignores God. He doesn't even say no. He just hears from God, hey, go and preach to Nineveh. And he gets up. He doesn't say a word. He goes down to the, the boats. He pays his way there, and then he flees God. And then we know that he runs from God, but then we know that God is running to Jonah. Jonah wants to die, and God spares his life. In Jonah chapter 2, we see that he is then swallowed by a great fish. This is something that we still don't fully understand or are aware of, but yet we know it's real, and it is literally a giant fish that swallows him. He is at the depths of death almost. Death is knocking at his doorstep, and he cries out this prayer to God, like, would you forgive me of what I have done? May I not be someone who worships false idols and sacrifice to those like others do. And so Jonah cries out to God. God spits him up on the shore. God gives, gives Jonah a second chance. So imagine if God had just left Jonah in the belly of the fish. That would have been the end of the story. That would have been the end of the prophet. But rarely does God leave us where we are even when we don't want him to save us. And I'm thankful that God is not a now or never God. He is a God of what we would call a second chance, which is our first point, a second chance. These three verses make it sound like we're starting from scratch. In the beginning of the story, Jonah ran away from God and his assignment to preach in Nineveh. The Lord had disciplined Jonah before rescuing him in his mercy. Jonah is given a second chance to preach God's message to the people of Nineveh as a demonstration of God's kindness and mercy even towards us. So think about that. Jonah is told by God the first time, hey, go and do this thing. Yeah, I'm not gonna do that. Hopefully he's learned his lesson, which it seems he does. He kind of wipes himself off with all the fish vomit and all the bones and scales from the fish that were probably in the belly of the great fish with him. And then God says, let's try this again. Okay, here we go. Arise, go to Nineveh and call out to them about their sin. And what does it say? Jonah went. Goodness, could you just imagine for a moment the heartache we could save ourselves if we just listened to God the first time? I know that I also try to uh, re re uh, reinforce this at my house with my kids. My kids will always ask, well, why do I get a consequence? I I'm usually the, the general in the home. I'm not usually the gracious one. I am the just one. So if you come to me, I'm going to make sure that justice is served and not in a good way sometimes because I want justice. I want, I want order. I want my house to be in line. I want to make sure that things are all good to go and oftentimes it's not. In fact, the Proverbs tell us that there is something good about having a messy house. It talks about when there is ox in the field, that field is going to be messy, which means that there's work being done and things being accomplished. So I've learned to try to cope with the mess of a house, knowing that things are being accomplished and relationships are being forged between my family and others. But then we notice 
that Jonah could have saved him some heartache if he would have just listened the first time. As I would tell my kids, if you would just listen the first time, I wouldn't have to give you a consequence. And here I am focusing on my justice rather than focusing on what God's grace could do to be extended to my kids in that sense. And so here we have sort of like a a little deja vu on our hands. We see it in Jonah chapter 1, go and do this, Uh uh-uh, not going to happen. Jonah chapter 3, it's the exact same wording. God doesn't even say, let's try this again. I just added that for flavor. God just says, let's try this again. Do this thing again. This deja vu, I don't know if you've ever experienced sort of a deja vu. I know when I experience something like that, I try to predict what could happen next as if I'm in some sort of like sci-fi Denzel Washington movie or something. And it's this eerie feeling that you've been here and done this thing before, which is called deja vu, which in fact I just learned yesterday that that word deja vu is French for already seen. It can be a very strange and even a very unsettling experience. Logically, you may know that you haven't experienced this moment before, but your brain is telling you otherwise. And so the second chance message, regardless if you're in the church or not, this sort of message reaches to us. If you do a quick Google search of the phrase, it links to speeches of politicians, sound bites from talk shows, um, different things from animated films, things like that. Everyone, no matter your view of Jesus or the Bible, we seem to find common ground around the belief that God gives second chances. The goal of God's plan then is to revive what has died. It's tempting then to consider this the core principle driving all preaching. Jesus seems to have called this the Jonah principle, so that's what we'll call it. It's Christ's rescuing power that will be made complete in our weakness. As a result, this principle of death has led to effective evangelism. Christ's power is displayed in our weakness when we come to share in his death, both spiritually and even sometimes physically, and others are drawn to him as a result. Think about the moments that you shared the gospel with someone and it came off as truth, it came off as fact, it came off as knowledge, but it didn't seem to go anywhere beyond just their mind. Because a lot of times we don't relate with truth and, and knowledge in that same way that we relate with experience. But then you sit down and you tell them, hey, I dealt with this thing. This situation came up in my life. And you, ha- you know what I have to say? God was still good through it. That tugs on the heartstrings of people. That gets their attention and they begin to wonder, hold on a second, you've preached this truth and this fact and this knowledge before, but there's something different about the reality that you've experienced it, that you're not just reading a script of the gospel, but that you're living something out that is living proof of a loving God even in the midst of your difficulty. Imagine that sort of impact that it can have on people in that way. It is the Jonah principle. It is knowing that even when my experiences are difficult, I can trust that God is going to use it for some purpose. He may not even tell you what his purpose is, but the reality, which we'll see in a few moments, is that all things work together for good. Job thirty-three twenty-eight says, He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look Upon the light. This was exactly what Jonah was experiencing. You see, our ability to serve God is a direct result of his unending grace towards us. 
and we think, I'm not worthy to serve. Well, good, guess what? You are never worthy to serve, and yet that's what makes serving so powerful. However, as we saw with Jonah, God is resolved that his servants would serve him, no matter the cost to him and no matter the cost to us. Sometimes we can go through that experience too. Unfortunately, we can easily miss God's first call on our life whether we are unsure if it is God who is actually speaking or rather that I might be reading into things. I know oftentimes we can do that. We can read into situations and wonder, is God in this? For instance, when we bought our house out here about a year ago, we were praying and praying and praying. And I don't, I'm sure I've shared this with some of you, but my daughter, my youngest one, whose birthday is today, by the way, she is now seven, which is crazy that my youngest is seven. She's not a baby anymore. That's weird. Um, and so one night she was praying and she, or she was asking me, dad, when are we going to get a house? And I'm like, I don't know. We just got to keep praying. We don't know what's going to happen. And we were actively looking. We had a real estate friend who was helping us look for homes and we just, we were, we were striking out everywhere. And at the time she was five and she said, well, can I pray for a house? Now this was at the time when it was, we were getting her ready for bed. She's in the bath, we're running late, you need to go to bed because mom and dad need time to just veg and like, just like catch up like what just happened today and that sort of thing, as you all parents are very aware, aware of, like get your kids to bed, be quiet, go to bed, I need my time, right? And so we were doing that and I was like, yeah, sure, you can pray. And all these simple words, all she said, Lord, help us get a house. I was like, oh, that's cute. The next morning at 8 a.m., we get a phone call, hey, we have a lot, there's no house on it, but you need to secure this lot. If you don't, it'll be gone in two hours. And I'm like, uh, okay, let me talk to my wife. And I told Lindsay, like, uh, we have a house. She's like, what? And I said, well, we have to go actually pay for it. And so we have to put the deposit down on it. We're not sure if we're going to have it. If we don't put it down, she was like, is this of God? And I'm like, your daughter prayed last night. Like, I think God's trying to tell us something. Something's going on here. And of course, you freak out because you're like, I don't want to put the money down on the deposit. Like, can I do it for free? And that doesn't always work that way, does it? We think of Gideon when Gideon was called by God to go and take 10,000 men into war. And God had told him, you are the guy. And Gideon's like, can you just do me a favor real quick? Can, I'm going to leave a blanket out. I'm paraphrasing, but I'm going to leave a blanket out on the, the ground outside or on a tree stump outside. And as a sign, can you actually make the blanket wet with the dew of the morning and then everything else around it, can you make it dry? And then I'll know that you are God and that you are the one calling me to this. Gideon goes to sleep. He wakes up the next morning, blanket wet, everything dry. Gideon's like, whoa, this is incredible. Like, this is what I asked God to do. But it wasn't sufficient enough for Gideon. God, can you do it one more time? Can you, can you make everything else now around it wet, but leave the blanket dry? And God does not complain. He doesn't, he doesn't get frustrated or roll his eyes. He does it for Gideon. Gideon wakes up in the morning, and he knows that it was God. I wonder if Gideon would have experienced something more powerful if he had just trusted God the first time. That's not why that story is there, but essentially what that means for us is we often second guess God's second chance. That's what happens a lot of times. We're like, God, are you in this thing? Well, I, I mean, I'm proving it to you. Like, 
here's what it is. Okay, well, can you do it one more time? Yeah, sure, however many times you need. And the second time we're like, oh, I don't know, was that like a demon this time? I don't know what to feel anymore. What is going on? We can miss out on it entirely because we aren't sure we are well equipped to do what God has asked or we, like Jonah, just don't like what God tells us to do. Well, I don't wanna live that way. I don't wanna do that thing. I don't wanna give up those people. It's amazing to know that God is fully committed to us and he goes to extraordinary lengths to help us become faithful and fruitful children of God. He persists in showing us how he is the designer of our lives and he says, look to me, Hebrews 12, the author and finisher of your faith. Look to me, I am the designer of your life. I am the one who gives you purpose and meaning in this life and apart from it, you can do nothing. And now we see this pattern of God's length to show Jonah exactly what type of God he really is because he wants to prove the salvation of one Hebrew sinner is intended to produce the salvation of many Ninevite sinners. It's the restoration of Jonah that was supposed to be the cause of revival in Nineveh. Job 33, 29 through 30 says, Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. What amazing grace do we receive from the Lord that he would be willing to use us even after we have been rebellious and disobedient towards him? A second chance. Our second point is a humble repentance. You see, the word of God is essential in equipping Christians for their service. It has the power to influence and change a person. Maybe you're familiar with these verses in 2 Timothy 3 that say all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, even when we are reluctant to be obedient, it has the power to break down our disobedience and to bring us to a new level of surrender. This is for sure what happened to Jonah. Despite his initial disobedience to God's word of command, Jonah was being shaped even by his own disobedience. You see, it's imperative to know and to recognize that the transformative power of God's love must be evident in our lives. Only when we allow ourselves to be broken, melted, and molded by his love can we truly be effective in serving his purposes. And so Jonah's story for us serves as a powerful reminder that we must be filled with God's love for others in order to make an effective difference in our world. It seems clear that God used even Jonah's disobedience to equip him to serve the Lord. So the question then for us is what will it take for you to serve the Lord? Now, this is not my segue into how you should be serving in the church. If you feel like that's what you need to do, then good, because that's God doing that, not me. But you should be serving in the church. But there are other ways you can be serving the church. The church is the body of Christ. Now, is church essential for being a Christian? Absolutely. 
You cannot be a Christian and not come to church. If you want to talk about that later, we're going to have a podcast episode come out about that. Because so many people say, oh, I can be a Christian and not be at church. Great, that's like being a part of a family and not having a family. Like that, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work that way. And so the question then we have to ask is, what is it going to take for me to serve the Lord? Maybe it's a current disobedience that is showing you and equipping you and you're kind of like pulling against the heartstrings and you're not sure if that's something you want to do because you're not sure if you take God at his word. You're not sure if he's even worth loving and even serving. What is it going to take for you to serve the Lord? You see, the bottom line, as we say so often here, is in our mission statement, our desire is to help you cultivate a love for God and others. And that is not a fancy word we came up with. We actually like took Jesus' words and we just plagiarized it, basically. He said, there's a greater commandment than all the other 613 Old Testament laws that can be summed up in these two words. Love God, love others. And that's it. That's how you serve the Lord. But in order to serve others best, you must love God the most. You see, God already knew about Jonah's disobedience. And rather than recruiting someone else, you know how easy it would be if someone failed you, if you own a company or you work with other coworkers and they failed, what is your boss gonna do? Well, I'm gonna find someone who will get it done. You see, God doesn't treat us like an employee. He treats us like his children. I don't lean into my kids and say, well, why, if you can't do it, then I'll figure it out. I'll find a kid and I'll adopt them and make sure that they do it for me. That's not, how, that's not how it works. That's not how God works. What does God do? He gets at their level. He gets at your level. I have found that the most effective way to talk to my kids is not down at them, but across from them. But you know what that takes me? It takes me getting down to their level, physically, literally, getting down at their level where they can actually hear me and see me. This is really awkward right now, isn't it? for me to get to their level because sometimes they think, oh, well, he's just a dad and he's just talking down to me. But if I, if I bring them in and I'm at eye level with them, they're like, oh, dad wants to really tell me something important. I wonder if some of us would be able to lean into what God is trying to show us this morning, that he is not recruiting someone else just because you messed up, just because you made a mistake. God's not wanting to recruit someone else who will do the job because God's business, if you will, is to use flawed men and women like us. And so we find ourselves, even in our disobedience, even though God knew Jonah's disobedience, what does he do? He pursues him even harder. That's what God does. He doesn't just give up on you and say, you know what? You do what you do. Rather than recruiting another person, who could obey perfectly, he uses a flawed, rebellious, arrogant man to humble him, to break him, to confine him to a place of a seemingly death and darkness, to show him his grace even more. Romans 5.20 says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. You see, we may have turned from God's will. We may have felt there is no hope for us, but if we are his children, then this principle stands, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, that's, that's the byproduct. That's how you get this promise. If you love God, well, how do I love God? Well, you love him sacrificially. You love him 
in a way where you don't love anything else before him. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In a comment on the text, one of my favorite authors uh, and pastors, Sinclair Ferguson says this, quote, all things, when it says that God works all things together for good, all things must mean everything or it means nothing. Even sin. God works in our lives so that we may be ready for that moment when the word of the Lord comes to us a second time. And what do we see? Jonah goes to Nineveh. What's interesting about the time period of Jonah going into the city, if you notice it says in verse three, so Jonah arose, went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. It says that that was the amount of time it would essentially take someone to walk through and get to know a city well enough. I know when you, maybe you've had different experiences, but when I land somewhere else that I'm unfamiliar with, I, have, I feel like I'm in a whole different world. You get off the plane, the airport looks different, the terminals look different, the people look different, the, the, the air looks different. All things look really different. And it's kind of weird and shocking how, how much culture shock you can experience just by going to a different city, even in the same state. You can imagine for Jonah that as he gets to Nineveh, which he knew was a really weird and wicked place, given how much wickedness was there. It says that Jonah began, verse four, to go into the city, going a day's journey. So he's only a day into this whole journey. He essentially has two more days to fulfill what he was telling God he would do to call out all of Nineveh to repentance. But in a day, he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Looking at those three verses, a mighty awakening was taking place in Nineveh that day. And the remainder of our story in chapter three describes how they came to God in repentance and faith. But notice the amount of time it took. It says that Jonah just went into the city and he was just there for a day's journey, which should have been three. So he's only a third of the way into the city and already people are repenting. People are already believing in God. From the king on the throne to the cattle in the fields, Nineveh was filled with the spirit of repentance. How? Well, for one, because Jonah opened his mouth. If you notice... However, throughout the book of Jonah, the only time he speaks up until now to God is when he is praying. All other times when Jonah opens his mouth, it's to the sailors. Well, I think my God's causing this storm, so I should probably, you should throw me overboard. He's like, what? That's weird. Jonah does not talk to God until Jonah chapter two when he's praying to God. Even in the second one, in the second call from God in Jonah chapter three, It says, God told him, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. He didn't say anything, he just went and did it. Because he doesn't communicate with God regularly that we know of, the only time he speaks up is in his prayer. And then we'll see next week, we'll save that. I don't wanna spoil it unless you've already read it. But we notice God speaks to him and he rebels. God brings a storm and he's sleeping. God brings a fish he feels like he's going to die. God causes the fish to spit him up. Jonah doesn't say thank you. 
God calls him a second time, Jonah listens, and then Jonah speaks to Nineveh. And when he speaks, he opens his mouth with words about what? What does it say? It says in verse four, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You see, Jonah's coming in with a preconceived idea like, if I'm gonna be the prophet of God to this people, I'm gonna tell them exactly what I want them to hear. He doesn't say cry out to God because he loves you and he's a God of repentance and he's a God of mercy and forgiveness. He's like, 40 days, you're gonna be overthrown. Jonah wants justice for the people of Nineveh. He wants Nineveh to know that you are not an Israelite. I am. Therefore, you got 40 days, bro, to change your mind about what you're doing. And yet those words were enough for even the most wicked of people to repent and turn to God. You have to wonder if Jonah said those words hoping that he would actually see that happen. And clearly God cannot cause a people to repent if I tell them they will be overthrown. I wonder if we would feel that same way about a different people group as well. But then we come to point number three, a gracious God. That's where this lies. It lies in everything that God is to us in his grace. I don't think it's a surprise to anyone, but I think that we stand in need of such an awakening as Nineveh experienced in our own world. And I wonder for us to see it, would we first need to see the humbling of God's supposed prophets and pastors who claim the name of Jesus and yet have nothing to do with him? It's crucial that we take action to ensure that the large number of people who are not part of our churches have the opportunity to hear and embrace the life-changing message of the gospel. So then the question is, well, what are we doing in our cities? How are we calling them to repent? Well, for one, we're using the word of God. That's the most powerful thing. But secondly, what we're doing in our church and what other churches are doing simultaneously right now is they're establishing and growing a community that God is building to show the world that even when everything else crumbles, when institutions and programs fall short of expectations, the church will never fall short because like Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Many have never heard of Christ They do not go to a place of worship. They have never really been invited by anyone. They may have never met and spoken to a Christian before. And it seems that so few Christians are making any effort to communicate with others about Jesus. Now, I think that there are some reasons for that. And I think that maybe because we have our own lives to figure out and to sort through, we don't know how we can possibly make time to do that for someone else. We have our own sin that we're dealing with, and we can't imagine being worthy enough to call other people to repentance when I am having a hard time repenting in the first place. Without God's presence resonating in the hearts of people, winning them over to Christ seems like an impossible task. And yet it is essential that God enters these rows of homes. Have you seen all these houses going up? I live in one of them. Some of you live in some of these new houses. All kinds of new opportunity in front of us to be the gospel to people. In fact, that is what is exactly going on when revival breaks out. It's making his presence noticed in order to bring about a transformation in the hearts of people. The presence of God is undeniable and can be experienced by all who seek it. It is evident that from the effects of Jonah's preaching, 
that God turned his words into arrows that almost quite literally pierced the consciences of those who heard. Now, of course, they heard Jonah's words, but through him and behind him, they recognized the voice of the living God. The history of such awakenings are seen throughout narratives like this, that things that don't seem to make sense and God uses it to break and spark revival-like things. And when we consider what we might be able to see in our church and through our own lives, lived out from the gospel are those being converted and found alive in Christ. You see, most conversions, it seems, begin with a few words that God uses to take us and to arrest us. It may be something in a sermon, of course. One little thing can spark a whole fire. But it is likely, perhaps, and even more likely today in our culture, to be few stumbling words of witness by a Christian that we know. The way it was said, the time in which it was said, our own spiritual condition when we heard it, God uses all of these things to bring people into the family of God. And so often, what we make church about is presenting how creative we are. You know how many different Easter programs and productions people put on last week? And it's like, where's Jesus in this? You're gonna do a play about something happening in hell and all these other things, and you're gonna put on a drama? Like, great, praise God that you know how to do drama, but does anyone know Jesus after that? We have become content in allowing church to become a Christian club that we have a membership to rather than recruiting people in a sort of bunker-like mentality where there's something going on that we can't really put our thumb on. And so we recognize only from the words in Ephesians 6 that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the powers and the principalities of the air, which in fact, after we finish the book of Jonah, we're going to go and study the book of Ephesians and we will eventually get to the armor of God that Paul talks about. And so it is that in trusting in the grace of God, they pled with God that they might, that he might be merciful to them. They weren't God's people. Jonah wanted to make sure of that. They were strangers to the faith, but God showed his grace for them by simple words that cut to the heart. Remember this you are always on God's mind. I don't know what situations you have going on or what deep, dark feelings you might be experiencing, but if you could remember anything this morning, and maybe this is one of those little short stumbling words that is just gonna be powerful and impactful for you today, you are always on his mind. He's always thinking about me. He's always thinking about you. Why would he think about me? I have a hard time thinking about myself. And yet God is constantly thinking about me. It is crucial to recognize that our understanding of God is solely dependent on his continuous efforts to pursue us. So don't think for a moment, wow, I'm really good at knowing God. We were doing uh, memory verses a few, uh, few months back and my youngest, Avery, she like nailed, I think it was the Lord's Prayer. And we were doing the Lord's Prayer and she said it verbatim, word for word, And like, wow, Avery, that was really good. And she's like, I know, I'm good at God. And we're like, wow, okay. But let me tell you, my dear sweet child, it is not because you are good at God, it's because God is good at you. Recognize that you too can know him 
for he has already taken the first step in knowing you and continues to do so. Believe me when I say this, that you have a friend who truly knows you and loves you. His unwavering attention is always on you and his care for you never falters. And he cares for you even when you don't want him to care for you. You can trust in his constant presence and his guidance. What we know from this, from Jonah 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. I mean, they turned so far from their evil way that they didn't just call humans to fast and to seek the Lord. They made their animals fast from eating. As if like, and I don't know if that was just, you know, new believers are like, whoa, if I need to fast and then my animals need to fast, And I don't know if that's where it was, but the reality is that they wanted something from their entire city to experience repentance, even if the animals needed to repent too. That's how far they were willing to lean into God. How far are you willing to lean into him? Maybe you've given part of your life to God, but maybe you've left something off limits. Well, no, 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 God will not, no, uh uh-uh. God will not have that part of my heart. Well, he cannot have the relationship that I'm in. He cannot have the addictions that I have. He cannot have these sinful tendencies where I sneak away and do something on my, no, he can't have, he can't have that compartment of my life. Either he has all or he has none. It is all in on God. But here's the reminder, God is all in on you. As we come to the communion table this morning, We think about those things. We think about how far God was willing to go to extend his love and his grace for us. And that is why every single Sunday morning when we gather together as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters in Christ, it is to remind us not just of what Christ has done, but collectively in unity to know that there's something unique about what we do when we partake together of the Lord's Supper. I wanna read to you 1 Corinthians 11, which gives us an understanding of how to partake of communion. Maybe you've heard it before, maybe this is brand new. To give you some context, the church that this letter was written to, Paul was an apostle of Christ, he used to persecute the church and now he's working for the church. Talk about grace. And he starts the letter by saying, hey, you guys are all following these, these different people. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Peter. Well, I follow this person. And they made all these claims about all the different people that they, were, that they were following and who they were baptized. And they made the emphasis on the person that they could tangibly see in front of them as the way by their faith moving forward. But Paul's whole letter was to come in and say, hey, there are some good things about you, but there are other things that we need to talk about. And so there was a, a big division in the church at that time in Corinth. And Paul says in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Could you, could you imagine Paul coming into our church like, hey, you guys do some great things, but let me tell you, it looks like you guys are coming here for your own good and not for the good of each other. In fact, what you're doing is not good. It's really bad. That's what Paul is saying here. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The only way Paul was able to see that there were true believers in the church is because he saw the other fake ones in the church. 
When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. They were partaking of communion to eat and to be satisfied. They were eating the bread. They had actual bread at that time. And they were eating it as a meal. And they were using the wine in the Lord's cup. We don't have wine, so you can't get drunk here today. And they were getting drunk off the wine. They were finding themselves selfishly indulging in the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, to do all that stupid stuff? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I not commend you in this? No, I will not commend you. So then he goes on to say, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he says in verse 28, this is what I want us to focus on. And this is where we're going to start kind of changing how we do communion a little bit. Not a ton. It's not going to be so unfamiliar. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight: Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What he's saying here is you need to examine your own life, what it means to be in Christ, and whether or not you are actually here for the right reasons. So what we're gonna do, we have asked over and over as we partake of communion that symbolically you would come before the, the communion table and receive those elements as a way of acknowledging you believe in the death and resurrection of Christ. But what we wanna do is shift that a little bit and before you walk here, we want you to examine your own life. We want you to examine your heart. So when we ask you to come forward, we don't want... a giant line forming and everyone just one after another picking their their communion cups we want you to examine your own life and when you feel like you have and maybe you've seen something as you're examining you're like i need to repent of that right now confess that to the lord and then go and get your cup and watch how much sweeter that moment is when we partake together so that's what we're going to do i'm going to pray We're gonna ask God to bless us this morning as we think about his supper. We need to examine our own hearts because if you examine it and you're like, I'm not ready to repent, the Bible says don't partake of this. Pass the cup. Just just don't come up here and get it. Let it pass. But rather than that, if you can, by the spirit of God, that's what we're praying for you right now. When you examine yourself and you see something in your heart and you're not sure how to handle it, May the spirit of God dwell on that for you that he might make intercession for you as the Bible says that Jesus is there to mediate. He's there to uh, facilitate between us and God. Examine yourself before you come to the communion table and if you need prayer after, we'll have myself and some of our other elders and pastors and their wives up here and around the room for you to pray with if you need to repent of those things later on but would you consider examining your own life right now and what that means as we come to the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. At Garden City, we believe the gospel has the power to transform lives, including yours. 
If you want to support our ministry and the message of the gospel, you can donate at gardencitychurch.co forward slash give.